So we started our short study in the book of Hosea last week. It started with this jarring commission from God to Hosea the prophet that goes like this. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And as the story unfolded, we saw last week, she would go on to bear three children, boy, girl, boy, and their names were as symbolic as the marriage. Jezreel, a name associated with violence and judgment. No mercy was the little girl's name. And not my people was the youngest boy's name. God's love and hope-laced judgment for his people Israel was being symbolically put on display in Hosea's family. And our passage ended with these strong words of God's judgment on his people for their sinful dalliances with Baal, the local god of the Canaanites. Verse 13, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Pastor Ray Ortland writes about that verse. He says it's significant because it makes explicit the connection between Israel's religious worship, burning incense to the Baals, and her spiritual adultery, going after lovers. It identifies Israel's lovers as the Baals and portrays her as a woman adorning herself to attract them. Now, when God says, and they forgot me, the next words we would expect, the next words we would write into the script might sound like this. They forgot me, so I forgot them. But that's not how God loves He loves better than our script. Listen to what God says. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So God does not forget his bride. It seems like he cannot forget her. Instead of forgetting her, he woos her. The language is rich and intimate. It borders on seductive here. God is going to out-woo those Baals. Professor David Hubbard says, allure her can be so strong as to suggest enticement or even seduction. Speak tenderly can be used in romantic context. Israel's answer to such courting from God must be yes, as it was on her honeymoon in the Exodus. So God is offering his people here a second honeymoon, it seems. He makes mention of a place there called the Valley of Achor. Literally, that means a valley of trouble. And that was its legacy for half a millennium in light of a man named Achan and his disobedience. Professor Dane Dwayne Garrett summarized it. He said, Joshua found out Achan's sin and the man was executed. The text tells us that Achan's grave was marked with a pile of rocks and the location named the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble, as a memorial in Joshua 7. Achan's sin, we recall, was in seizing riches that God had declared taboo. By analogy, the Israel of Hosea's day went after the gifts of her lovers. 
But the grace of God here reverses the meaning of achor. Instead of signifying punishment for greed, it has become a place of restoration. And so this is how our God loves. He replaces trouble, even deserved trouble, with undeserved hope. And at this point, I feel compelled to quote that North Carolina prophet, James Vernon Taylor, how sweet it is to be loved by you, right? <laughs> how sweet it is to be loved by you, God. Um, what kind of God loves like this? Even on our terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days, our God does. This is how our God loves us, even us. Look, look again, verse, starting in verse 15. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. So this is her answer to God as in, as in the days of her youth when she was on her honeymoon coming out of slavery in Egypt when she shouted her yes to Yahweh, her deliverer. And now these Baals are gonna be put in their place by this compelling love of Yahweh, which means they have no place in the affections or even the memory of God's people. God's love is that good, that much better than the competition um, back in their day and in ours. No love compares to the love of our God. Indeed, the New Testament says nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when you read those verses, it seems odd that they would have called God by the name Baal. But when you realize that my Baal really just means my Lord, I suppose you could see how that could happen. And you can see how the, the dark lords of the Canaanites would seize that little opening to wheedle their way into the people's hearts and minds. But now they, they'll call him by a new name, my husband. And his love for his bride is going to prevail. This new name, my husband, will drive out the old name, my Baal. And God is doing this. Ray Ortland, Pastor Ray Ortland says, Israel cherished glad expectations of the Baals, but felt little interest in Yahweh. She courted their favor, but neglected him. She adorned herself for them, but slighted him. And in response, he swears that her betrayal of his love will not succeed. And if this isn't stunning enough, watch what God does next for his unfaithful bride. Verse 18 to 20, I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfastness, love, and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. So it's like all creation is going to be put right. It's like the playground for this honeymooning couple, right? It's going to be perfect. Beasts and birds and creeping things. I guess that's things like toads and bugs and stuff. It's all going to be right. Um, this is a reversal of the judgment that came back in verse 12, where God said, I'll lay waste to her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest 
and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And of course, all of this renewal of creation finds its ultimate fulfillment when the Messiah comes again, when the Christ comes again, when Jesus comes again. The Bible closes with this kind of imagery. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So when God's people return to him, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well, all of creation, and there'll be no more war. It says, I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I'll make you lie down in safety. And I love the way the prophet Isaiah would write about the same thing. He says, he shall judge between the nations, writing of the Messiah. He shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And now on top of this, God betrothes his wayward bride yet again. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Now, my youngest son, Josiah, just got engaged to his beloved Claire about a week ago atop Grandfather Mountain in Boone. And uh, it was a grand proposal, right? A beautiful place, a wonderful girl. Um, it was the way proposals were supposed to be done, right? It was wonderful. But in this proposal, in our story, Gomer has done nothing right. She keeps running away to other lovers. And in Hosea, God keeps pursuing and loving her still, hedging her in so that her sin won't satisfy and drawing her back to his love. And now he proposes again in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love, in mercy and in faithfulness. Faithfulness. Of all things to promise a whore. Faithfulness. And now the language of verse 2 is reversed. Remember verse 2? Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. But now he proposes again, and she is. The language of forgetting in, in verse 13 is reversed. It says, she went after her other lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord, but now she'll know the Lord in the language of rich intimacy, marital intimacy. Verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. The Lord just keeps piling on these beautiful reversals that are going to happen when his people return to him. Verse 21, and in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Then again, the judgment upon creation is beautifully reversed. Um, we return to the object lesson of Hosea's family. The children's names are reversed. Um, the one who, was, who, was, who has no mercy will now have mercy. The one who is not my people will now be my people. And then he returns 
in chapter 3 to the theater of his marriage to Gomer. And again, God speaks to Hosea, and the way is made clear to him about what he must do. And I imagine this might have been more difficult than the first charge he got from God. In chapter 3, it says, The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, an expression of that false worship. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethek of barley. So God asks Hosea to pursue his wayward bride again and buy her back from another lover. The language of purchase here, I bought her, cracks the door and lets us get just a glimpse into the room where Gomer may have descended. It could have been mere financial slavery that she had become that destitute. But perhaps hers was a slavery of another kind. And you wonder, was Hosea out wandering the streets at night from alley to alley and brothel to brothel searching for his bride? Did he find her there enslaved to another man, used by other men? Or perhaps it was in the day at a slave auction wearing the garb of a whore or the rags of a harlot used up or perhaps even there naked before all the men of the city as slaves were known to be auctioned off. And so Hosea stands and he participates in the bidding and he buys back his bride from another. D.A. Carson suggests he buys her from her pimp. And because of Hosea's love for God and for her, he wins that bidding, and he takes her home to love her still. Why? Why would God have him pursue her even when she had been so publicly unfaithful? Because this is how our God loves. Hosea is God's rich portrayal of what God, God's love is like towards his own wayward people, towards us. So in this story, God he is, or Hosea, rather, we would say, is like God. Now, can you guess who you are like? Right? Can you find yourself in this story? If Hosea is like God, there aren't very many options left. We are like Gomer. And most of us would resist the description of unfaithful, let alone take the title of prostitute. But the Bible teaches that all have been wayward spiritually. Isaiah says that we've all turned every one to his own way. Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, simply says, all have sinned. Mark Shipp writes, lest we miss the point for our own day, I think it's important to emphasize that idolatry is not only a primitive practice, long gone from our enlightened age. Modern idolatry is all the more seductive because of its subtlety. The ancients personified and deified natural forces, human phenomena beyond their control. Through sacrifice, prayer, and sympathetic enactment, the gods could be appealed to for help with economic, personal, or political needs. It wasn't that they abandoned completely the worship of the Lord. It was that the Lord was good for matters of national identity and morality, but when it came to economy, family, health, security, and local politics, Canaanite deities seemed to speak to these more directly. He says, I do not think it is greatly different in our day. Most Americans believe in God, 
Most even consider themselves Christians. But Wall Street, Washington, Hollywood, the Federal Reserve Bank, the Pentagon, a host of insurance and investment companies speak to daily issues and crises in a practical way. And we tend to trust these idols more implicitly than we do the true provider of ancient Israel and the modern church. See, Israel's great sin was that she forgot God and she trusted elsewhere. She looked elsewhere for her satisfaction and provision. So we are like Gomer. We are like Israel, more than we would like to admit. And Hosea, by his marriage to a wayward Gomer, shows us what God's love is like for us, even us. His is a love that chooses the undeserving. He chooses the undeserving. Rekha Trinidad writes this article. She says, on June 19, 2016, the Cleveland Cavaliers, led by their superstar, LeBron James, clawed their way back from a three-game-to-one deficit, won three games in a row, and became pro basketball's new champs. After the seventh and final game, which the Cavaliers won 93-89, their head coach, Tyron Lue, referred to LeBron James as he proclaimed, great things happen to great people. And in the realm of pro sports, that statement might be true. After all, James carried his team through the final three games, averaged almost 30 points per game, and became the finals MVP. And then she says, but the gospel of Jesus and of Gomer offers a very different take on great things happen to great people. The gospel says great things happen to bad people, unworthy people, little people, poor people, unrighteous people, unfaithful people. Not because of who who we are, but in spite of who we are and who we have become and what we have done. God's choosing us in love goes beyond unconditional. It's contra-conditional. So when God says, I will take for myself a wife, and he chooses us, he does it with his eyes wide open, knowing our bent to be unfaithful spiritually, to go our own way. Mercifully. God chooses differently. He loves differently. He chooses those who will fail, those who've already failed. He loves the undeserving. One author said, what an immense grace God is giving me. But how did I come to deserve it after so many sins? Truly our God is a God of mercy. He loads us with gifts at the very time we're giving him no thought or worse, betraying him. We could say our God loves in spite of, not because of. Hosea's God, Gomer's God, our God loves the undeserving, even folks like us, with an unexplainable love. He chooses us, not because we're so successful and beautiful and talented. He does not wait until after we've gotten our act together. But he loves and chooses us in our fallenness, our brokenness, and our sinfulness, we could say while we're still active in the profession. Even then, especially then, he loves us. You know, recently there was a high school textbook, ethics textbook published by the Chinese government that included a revised version of John chapter eight, Jesus' encounter with a woman caught in adultery. The, text, uh, the textbook says, um, or, or rather the text says in John eight, After that woman is exposed, there's a crowd of men gathered there. Jesus says, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. 
But in the communist revision, Jesus says the law has to be enforced and Jesus stones the woman to death himself. Mercifully, this is not how our God loves. To know the love of God is to know what it means to be chosen and loved when we do not deserve it, to be loved in spite of, not because of. His is a love that chooses the undeserving and pays whatever price is required. Hosea 3, the Lord said to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love those cakes of raisins. So I bought her, Hosea says, for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethek of barley. It's, the purchase price is curious, right? 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethek of barley. Some have said this is a modest sum. If there was bidding going on, no one found Gomer worth driving the price up, evidently. And it's a mixture of cash and commodities, right? Of bank and garden. It's an odd way to make a purchase. Half cash, half grain. Unless you don't have enough cash. Then it makes sense. Hosea, it seems, was scraping together all he had to pay the price in order to buy his beloved back. Hosea was loving Gomer the way God loves us. Famously, the New Testament says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is where these closing verses of Hosea and Gomer's story take us. They take us to Christ. Look at verse 3. Hosea says, I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now, when Hosea talks there, about them returning to David, their king. David has been dead for about 200 years. He's not looking back. He's looking forward to the one who sits on David's throne and will rule there forever according to the ancient prophecies. The New Testament begins with these words of fulfillment, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And when you look at it through that telescopic prophetic lens, Hosea here is being very Christ-like. He loves the undeserving. He pays a great price for her, just as Jesus would do. Peter wrote about it. He says, know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So in love... The prophet Hosea pursued the adulterous whore Gomer and bought her back and loved her once again. And in that action, he points us to Jesus. This is why Jesus had to suffer and die. By his death, he would buy us back to make a way for the undeserving, people like you and me, to know the love of God, the costly, seeking, undeserved love of God. Nancy Guthrie says, God has loved you 
when you were not even looking for him. He chose you and determined to make you his own. He wooed you to himself with gospel promises of mercy instead of punishment, belonging instead of estrangement. He loved you by redeeming you from your enslavement to all lesser lovers, and he is loving you even now. So when you have no good, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days that are totally your fault, Gomer days, we could call them, I suppose. Cling to the truth that God loves you even then. In a sense, especially then. There's an old, dead British guy named Thomas Goodwin. And he lived almost 400 years ago and he wrote these encouraging words for our Gomer days. This is what he says. Listen closely because it's from a long time ago. The greater the misery is, the more is the pity when the party is beloved. Now of all miseries, sin is the greatest. And while you look at it as such, Christ will look upon it as such also. And he, loving your persons and hating only the sin, his hatred shall all fall and that only upon the sin to free you by its ruin and destruction. But his affection shall be the more drawn out to you and this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not. What he's saying is that the grace is commensurate with the sin. It's greater than the sin. So this morning, come to Christ. Turn from those lesser loves and embrace the love of God for you. He is calling you. He is wooing you this morning. Now, if you've never trusted Christ, if you've never placed your sin on his cross-bearing shoulders so that you don't have to bear it anymore, then there is a very real sense that your terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days will stay on you. It'll be up to you to erase the mark on God's ledger. Somehow you have to find the resources to buy your freedom from slavery to sin. And friend, it cannot be done. Our only hope is to trust Jesus to be our sin bearer and to receive his love for us and then love him back with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this morning, God is inviting. He is wooing you this morning, saying, come and, come and do that now. Our worship team has written a new song out of the book of Hosea. And I'd like to invite them to come up. They're going to lead us in it. And let it be your prayer this morning in response to how God has loved you.